0: Welcome to the PartCast series, Episode 47, Part 2, Online Child Pornography. The PartCast series brings evidence-informed child welfare practice to life by highlighting literature reviews from the Particle Archives. This second podcast in the Child Sexual Exploitation series will continue to discuss the online sexual exploitation of children. We will discuss recidivism rates of online offenders treatment, and how child welfare workers can help protect children. Due to the sensitive nature of this podcast, it is imperative that you take your time in listening to it and that you debrief with colleagues or supervisors about feelings and responses associated with this topic. Recidivism. Since the prevalence of sexual interest in children is often higher in online offenders compared to contact offenders against children, it is understandable that law enforcement and child welfare practitioners are concerned about whether or not an online offender will one day commit a contact offense or re-offend online. Recidivism is defined as the tendency of a convicted criminal to re-offend. Some factors have been shown to be more common in those who re-offend compared to those who do not. A younger age of onset of sex offending, having prior convictions for sex offenses, having a violent criminal history, targeting male victims, the presence of deviant sexual interests or preferences, having an antisocial personality disorder. Research in Canada, the UK, and Switzerland has suggested that child pornography online offenders have relatively low recidivism rates compared to contact offenders. A meta-analysis completed by CETO and colleagues revealed that 4.6 percent of online offenders reoffended with a sex crime, either contact or online between 1.5 and six years after being charged with a first online offense. Of this reoffending population, committed a contact offense against a child, and 74% committed a new child pornography offense. When measuring recidivism, it is important to distinguish between new charges, that is, new offenses committed after the arrest for child pornography, and historical events, offenses that took place prior to the arrest. The inclusion of historical events in recidivism rates can skew the accuracy of our understanding, which makes it harder to apply the findings to practice. Recidivism rates of online sexual offenders are conflicting, depending on how the data are collected. Broader definitions of recidivism, higher risk samples, and longer follow-up times can skew results. For example, a study that collects the recidivism rates of online sex offenders released from a custody setting over a 25-year period, will have much higher recidivism rates than a study that looks at reoffending in a community sample over a 2-year period. Phallometric testing has consistently shown to be one of the strongest predictors of sexual recidivism amongst identified sexual offenders. Phallometric testing is an objective measure of changes in penile volume or circumference in response to sexual stimuli. An increase in penile volume or circumference while being shown child pornography can help detect sexual interest in children. Treatment for child pornography offenders Preferred treatment or management strategies of child pornography users relies on a thorough assessment of the user's habits and motivations, as this can impact the intervention required. There are several things to consider when identifying why the potential offender may be using child pornography. For example, it would be important to know if the offender has a strong sexual interest in children or has been diagnosed as a pedophile. In other instances, the use of child pornography may be due to impulsive behavior, curiosity, or accidental access. CEDO and colleagues have identified four groups of child pornography offenders. Those who have a paraphilic disorder, such as pedophilia, and would be considered high risk for treatment and management. Those who are sexually compulsive or hypersexual and would need help with sexual self-regulation. Those who rate high on impulsivity and risk-taking and who would need help with self-regulation. Those who were curious or accidentally came across child pornography and would be considered low risk for treatment or management. Identifying whether or not an individual is at low or high risk of reoffending can impact recommended treatment. For example, a low risk child pornography offender who is placed in a high intensity program may inadvertently increase his or her risk of reoffending due to their association with peers who may have higher levels of criminal activity. On the contrary, treating a high-risk child pornography offender in a low-intensity program may not give them the appropriate dose of treatment. Many clinicians and researchers agree that paraphilic disorders such as pedophilia can never be cured. There is evidence to suggest that these tendencies are stable over time. Even though a paraphilic disorder and the sexual attraction towards children may never fully dissipate, the individual may learn behavior management techniques to inhibit their urges and not engage in child pornography use and defend sexually against children. During the treatment or management of pedophilia, it would also be necessary to identify whether or not the individual has any other psychiatric disorders. The comorbidity of pedophilia with other psychiatric disorders, such as personality disorder, is common. Non-pharmacological treatment options Behavioral therapy Behavioral therapy, learning ways to suppress arousal to paraphilic stimulus, has been used as a way to treat people with paraphilic disorder. This type of treatment is often considered aversive conditioning and involves the pairing of a sexual arousal to a negative stimulus. In this case, a picture displaying child pornography with an unpleasant odor. The evidence has shown that people can learn to have greater control over their sexual arousal through this type of behavioral conditioning. However, more research is needed on how long these effects last. Self-management techniques. Cognitive behavioral techniques have become one of the most common psychosocial therapies for treatment of people with paraphilic disorders, which focus on either relapse prevention or self-regulation. In both of these treatment frameworks, the therapist and client work together to identify thought processes and behaviors that may lead to acting upon the sexual urge. Once these are recognized, the individual may become more aware of risky situations and triggers And can thereby initiate coping strategies developed to help avoid or refrain from acting on sexual impulses. Pharmacological Treatment Options To obtain best results, pharmacological interventions should be used in combination with a more comprehensive treatment plan, including psychotherapy. Pharmacological approaches often include the use of antiandrogens that help reduce the individual's libido thus helping the offender become more responsive to psychotherapeutic approaches. This treatment option depends on factors such as the offender's previous medical history, compliance with treatment, intensity of paraphilic disorder, and risk of sexual violence. No consensus about the duration of treatment has been reported in the literature as of yet. Some researchers and clinicians suggest a minimum of three to five years while others believe that since paraphilias are chronic disorders, a lifelong treatment may be necessary. Protecting Children and Youth Who do offenders target? Perhaps one of the most comprehensive data sets we have on child pornography in Canada has been collected by Cybertip.ca. Cybertip.ca has been working for the past 13 years to help better understand and fight the issue of child pornography. Cybertip.ca was created as part of the Government of Canada's National Strategy for the Protection of Children from Sexual Exploitation on the Internet, and is operated by the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. This hotline receives and processes tips from the public about potentially illegal materials and activities regarding children and online sexual exploitation. Cybertip.ca works closely with law enforcement and child welfare agencies to help protect children being exploited online. Since 2002, Cybertip has received over 175,000 reports from the public with child sexual abuse imagery and videos being the most reported concern. Between 2008 and 2015, with the hopes of gathering information on the victims being targeted, Cybertip.ca worked to complete an analysis of the imagery and videos being reported. As part of this analysis, the age, gender, and severity of abuse have been analyzed. Overall, the information reported by Cybertip.ca paints a grim reality for the children in Canada who are victims of child pornography. According to their data, just over 78% of the images and videos analyzed include children under the age of 12, with the majority being under the age of 8. Approximately half of the images and videos that were analyzed involved explicit sexual abuse of children by adults. One of the most alarming concerns that has been highlighted by Cybertip.ca is the negative correlation between the age of the victim and the level of abuse experienced. As the age of the child decreases, the sexual abuse and sexual acts become more intrusive and violent. To see the full report by Cybertip.ca, please visit the URL available on the print version of this literature review on page 6. Previous research on child pornography and adult pornography suggests that individuals seek out material that is most arousing to them and reflects their sexual fantasies. It is hypothesized that the type of child pornography being collected in terms of gender, age, and sexual acts depicted may indicate the sexual preference and interests of the offender. When examining child pornography collections of mixed offenders The gender and age of the child pornography victim is often related to the contact victim, further supporting the theory of anchoring. For example, if an offender is mainly seeking out and collecting child pornography of children in a specific age range, with the majority of victims being female, this may give insight into the sexual preferences and fantasies they hold and the contact victims they may choose. The sexual fantasies of offenders may reflect the sexual offending behavior committed, and the collection of child pornography may be preserving a child at the very age and stage of development that is most appealing to the offender. Research suggests that offenders may have varying anchor points across the five levels of child abuse imagery, which we discussed in Part 1 of this podcast series. These anchoring points can vary between child pornography-only offenders and mixed offenders, as they may suggest the offender's prominent interest in children. These hypotheses do have some merit, as research often shows that even though child pornography-only offenders have significantly larger collections of child pornography than mixed offenders, the collections of child pornography-only offenders have a higher proportion of low-level imagery compared to mixed offenders, who have higher proportions of high-level imagery. Again, you can learn more about the five levels of child abuse imagery in Part 1 of this podcast series. Child Pornography and Child Welfare Predatory crimes against children often require access to targets. Thus, children with guardians who are absent are at higher risk of victimization, due to the lack of supervision. Youth who use the internet and who have experienced sexual or physical abuse tend to receive more aggressive sexual solicitations online. In addition, trauma is associated with risky adolescent sexual behavior which may interfere with the decisions that children and youth make when online. Children and youth involved in the child welfare system may be at higher risk of victimization if they have inconsistent or distant caregivers and have an affinity for engaging in more risky behaviors overall. Not only are children and youth involved in the child welfare system at higher risk of being a victim of child pornography, they may also be more at risk of participating in offending behaviors in the future. Some factors associated with sexual offending in adolescence include a history of sexual abuse, family dysfunction, and mental health diagnoses, such as conduct disorder, substance abuse, and depression, all factors that children involved in child welfare may have been exposed to or are coping with at higher rates than the general population. Within the population of child pornography users, it has been estimated that from 3 to 15% of offenses were committed by juveniles. This number increases when including youth who have been involved with self-produced and disseminated sexual images. Outside of only child pornography use, youth under the age of 18 commit about half of all sexual offenses against children. A large proportion of adults who have been diagnosed with paraphilias and deviant sexual interests in children report that these interests developed in adolescence. Conversations about sex and sexuality should happen with adolescents who may be displaying these interests. In order to best support those children and youth who are victims and perpetrators of online and offline offenses against children, much more research is needed. In existing literature, some researchers have noted the contradictions or gaps in laws regarding online offenses against children and youth. As an example, the age of consent for sexual activity is 16 years old in Canada. However, the law often declares that child pornography or solicitation of minors include those under the age of 18. Therefore, a 17-year-old male can legally have sex with a 16-year-old female in Canada but could be criminally charged for possessing or producing digital images or videos of his partner in sexually illicit poses. How to Protect Children Online Between the ages of 8 and 12, children and youth have an increased interest in spending time online. This can offer great opportunities for socializing, entertainment, and learning, but also requires extra attention and precaution from caregivers and adults. Some things that children this age may do online include play online games, socialize with peers on social media, use the internet for school projects, research, and learning, access an email account or instant messaging, watch videos and TV shows, and download songs, pictures, and games. Each of these activities creates an opportunity for a child or youth to be exposed to material that may be explicit, or put them in situations that may be risky. Responsibility of protecting children online starts with families, schools, internet service providers, and the larger community. As an adult or caregiver, you have a responsibility to ensure that the child or children in your care are safe online, just as you would protect them offline. Some ways that adults or caregivers can help protect children online include Always supervise your child's online activities Balance the amount of time your child spends online with offline activities Use filtering software programs Restrict your child's use of adult search engines. For example, instead of Google, use a child-friendly search engine, like KidRex. Know your child's login information, passwords, and email addresses. Explore online games your child plays to make sure they are age-appropriate. Explain that you will monitor your child's online activities as the Internet is a public space. Nothing goes unseen. Teach your child the difference between public and private information and what should or shouldn't be shared online. Be open about the dangers of the online world, just as you would in the offline world. Schools also have an important role to play in helping protect children from online predators. Prevention tactics such as educational campaigns that promote internet safety, awareness to the dangers of sexual abuse online and in person, and healthy sexuality can help children and youth identify warning signs of potential victimization. Conclusions This podcast has outlined the likelihood of offenders reoffending and treatment options available for those who use, make, or trade child pornography. Better understanding of who offenders may target and how to protect children and youth can help child welfare workers and foster caregivers be aware of some of the challenges that the internet brings with regards to the online sexual exploitation of children and youth. As a child welfare worker or caregiver, you may be assigned a case in which an adolescent or adult in the family has had a history of child pornography use. Using an evidence-informed practice map and critically reflecting on the specific case at hand may help you determine the level of risk, if any, that this poses on the children and youth that are in your care. An example evidence-informed practice map is depicted on page 9 of the print version of this research review. You can log in at partcanada.org to access this print version in the Particles Library. Key summary points, researchers have found that recidivism rates for child pornography offenders are relatively low compared to offenders who also commit in-person sexually based offenses against children. It is important to know whether or not an individual is at low or high risk of reoffending, as this can impact the type of treatment required. Research suggests that individuals seek out material that is most arousing to them and reflects their sexual fantasies. Therefore, it is hypothesized that the type of child pornography being collected in terms of gender, age, and sexual acts depicted may indicate the sexual preferences of the offender. You have been listening to the PartCast series, episode 47, part 2. At partcanada.org, you can access part 1 of this episode, as well as literature reviews in print format in the Particles Library. The PartCast series is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about and additional resources on this episode's topic, the podcast series, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.partcanada.org.